Hey, my name's Matt Kennedy, and this is the Steadfast Podcast. This podcast exists to use Bible study and theological teaching to encourage you to be steadfast in your faith. Thank you for taking time out of your day to check out the Steadfast Podcast. I hope today's episode is an encouragement to you. So last week we started chapter 8 with different reactions to God's Word. The last reaction was when the Word goes into the good soil, Jesus calls it. And in that good soil, the Word takes hold and it grows and beautiful things happen. This week we're going to talk about four of those things that happen in the good soil. Four things the Word does for us. Now these are not going to be the only four things, but they are four really important things. This is a long chapter, and it's one of those sections that did not seem right to break up since there does seem to be continuity within it. All that means is I should probably stick closer to my notes than I sometimes do, otherwise this could be a super long episode. Our first point, the first thing I want you to see that God's Word does for those who are good soil, is that God's Word gives us family. We're going to start in verse 19. Quote, Then his mother and his brothers came to him. But they could not reach him because of the crowd. And he was told, Your mother and your brothers are standing outside desiring to see you. But he answered them, My mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. So Jesus had been teaching, and so many people wanted to hear what he had to say. His mom and his half-brothers, they couldn't get to him. The crowd was too dense. So when he gets word that they can't reach him... He says, anyone who hears and does the word of God is in his family. Why do you think he says, my mother and brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it, instead of just hear the word of God? Doing or obeying God's word is the mark of faith. Remember, Hebrews 11 tells us that it was by faith that Noah built the ark. God said it, Noah believed it, and we see that belief in the fact that Noah built the ark. If I were to tell you that a cold front, a glorious cold front is coming through your town overnight, and that tomorrow morning when you left your home, it was going to be a chilly 10 degrees outside, you could nod along and you could be like, yeah, sure, that sounds good. But it would be the person who decided to put on their big coat that actually would believe the words that were said. Actions show what we actually believe. Anyone can say they believe anything and not let it affect any of their life. But it is the person that says, yes, I'm going to take hold of this message, take hold of this truth in God's word, and let it change the way that I think, change the way that I speak, change the way that I act, just change the way that I live. Because I believe it is true. Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 through 6 say this, quote, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, end quote. What Paul is saying to the church in Galatia is that when we believe in Jesus, we're not just saved from our sins, but we are saved into a family. A family that has brothers and sisters all over the world who look different, talk different, think different, but are all family because of Jesus. We all have the same Heavenly Father. The church can be a very complicated family to be in. 
But we do have God as our Heavenly Father, and we have Jesus as our older brother. Now, side note, if calling Jesus our brother is weird to you, other than the fact that he just said it in Luke 8.21, uh, that one of the verses we just read. You can also check out Hebrews chapter 2, verse 11, or Romans chapter 8, verse 29. I will try to remember to put those in the show notes below. Jesus is the eternal, everlasting, second person of our triune God, and we are adopted into the family of God. So that link may seem hard to fit, but it is how the Bible describes this relationship. This side of heaven, this church family that we are adopted into, is going to be a bunch of sinful, imperfect people. They're going to fall short. You're going to fall short. I'm definitely falling short. But there is an incredible promise and hope here. This family that Jesus is calling to himself, is building on himself, will one day be perfect. One day this family will love one another to perfection. All the things that cause tensions or or pain or anxiety, all those things are things of the past. This family will one day be perfect as they enjoy one another and their heavenly father and their elder brother forever. Now, I know there are some of you that are listening to me, and you're thinking about your own family, and you're thinking about the dysfunction in your family, the crazy in your family. You probably have faces and names, and boy, don't we all. And before we move on, I would just like to say this word of encouragement. Do not let the, the, the craziness or maybe the brokenness of your earthly family paint the picture of what you see this heavenly family being like, because I know we all got stuff. We all have baggage that we bring to the table, but I promise you one day the bags don't make it through the door. The craziness stops outside. The brokenness is made whole and it will be beautiful. So when you think about brokenness or crazy within your family, let that stir in you a hope that one day that also will be reconciled by Christ making all things new. So the first observation is that God's word gives us family. Now, our second observation is that God's word gives peace. Let's look at verse 22 and following. Quote, One day he got into a boat with his disciples, and he said to them, Let us go across to the other side of the lake. So they set out, and as they sailed, he fell asleep. And a windstorm came down on the lake, and they were filling with water and were in danger. And they went and woke him, saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. And he awoke. And rebuked the wind and the raging waves, and they ceased, and there was a calm. He said to them, Where is your faith? And they were afraid, and they marveled, saying to one another, Who then is this, that he commands even winds and water, and they obey him? End quote. We know at least four of the disciples were fishermen. Andrew, Peter, James, and John, and we think Thomas and Bartholomew, a.k.a. Nathaniel, were also fishermen, but we know four of them were. So we're talking about a third of this group, maybe a half of this group, see, fractions are your friends, were fishermen by trade, meaning that for years and years they had gone out on a boat, pretty similar to the one they're on now, onto a body of water, pretty similar if not the same as the one they're on now, and they're casting fishing nets into the water hour after hour, day after day. It was just the norm for them. Now, with that background, with that experience, I am sure beyond the slightest doubt that they have experienced storms on the water before. This was not their first rodeo. They knew what storms looked like when they were on the sea on a boat. Yet there is something different about this particular storm that had all of these experienced fishermen going complete panic mode. 
They were absolutely convinced that this is it. This is how they die. This storm was too much for them to handle, and they were scared out of their minds. But we all see the one guy who's not the least bit concerned. Obviously, it's Jesus. I love that he's taking a nap. The wild wind and the waves, they just rocked him right to sleep. He is at total peace. I'm imagining Jesus taking this like real good yawn, wiping the sleep out of his eyes, and with a word, he rebuked the storm. He told it to shush, and it did. And the disciples, they're blown away. Who can command the wind? Who can command the water? Now, if they've heard of the Old Testament book of Job, which I'm pretty sure they had, they would know that only God can do that. And while we're on this topic, if you haven't read Job 38 in a while, I would encourage you to do so. It's a great, awesome reminder that He's God and we're not. And that is something we all, all need. The Word of God gives us peace because it tells us about God, that He cares for us. When the disciples were afraid, who did they turn to? They turned to Jesus. In the book of John, Jesus told them, He said, Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. In Romans, Paul wrote, God proved his own love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus dying on the cross is the ultimate sign of his love and his care for us. If he is willing to die so that you might have life, that means you can trust him with your life. He loves and he cares. And oh, he is powerful. At the gym I go to, we use this one piece of equipment pretty often called an assault bike. It's one of those bikes that you pedal with your arms and legs at the same time. If you have no idea what I'm talking about, just Google a picture of it. It'll make a lot more sense. On this assault bike, there is this little screen that gives a lot of information, a lot of data on there. But one piece of data that I find particularly interesting is how much energy you're producing in terms of watts. They'll often tell us in the gym to keep the watts over 300. Now, 300 watts sounds like a lot, right? Please, just nod out of sympathy or pity or whatever. Yes, nod your head. 300 watts is a lot. But when we think about what 300 watts can accomplish, that's how much you need to keep five light bulbs going, five 60-watt light bulbs. So if I'm pumping out 300 watts and I'm maintaining that for a minute, do you know what I just accomplished? I managed, with all the energy that I have in my body and all the sweat that is now flooding the gym, I managed to keep five flickering light bulbs on for a minute. Think about that. Think about how many light bulbs are in your house, and you'll see how truly unimpressive that feat is in the grand scheme of things. Now let us compare that to what God is capable of doing, okay? Over that same one-minute span... The sun, the star at the center of our solar system produces enough watts to meet every possible human energy need for 30 million years. 30 million years. And scientists say there's more stars like our sun out there in the universe than there are grains of sand on the earth. God spoke that into existence. He didn't strain. He just spoke. We cannot compare our strength to His, our power to His. We're talking about totally radically different categories. I do everything my body allows me to do to keep five light bulbs on for a minute, and in that same time, one of the quadrillions of stars that he made that he spoke into existence effortlessly is able to supply every human energy need possible for 30 million years. 
These are two different categories. But when you pair the power with his love for you in that, that can be the source of our peace. The one who loved us enough to die for us is also more powerful than our brains are capable of processing. So when the storms of life come and they're too much for us, like the literal storm that was too much for the disciples, we call upon God who loves us, who is bigger than the storm. And this is a beautiful thing we see all over God's word. So let it give us peace. So God's word gives us family. God's word gives us peace. God's word gives us freedom. Verse 26 and following, quote, Then they sailed to the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite of Galilee. When Jesus had stepped out on the land, there met him a man from the city who had demons. For a long time he had worn no clothes, and he had not lived in a house but among the tombs. End quote. We're just going to pause real quick right here. Do you see how bad of shape this man is in? It said demons. Now, when you put an S at the end of the word, that means it's plural, right? One demon would be hard enough. Demons is a whole different category. He's tormented by demons. He's homeless. He's clothless. He's alone. He's sleeping in the graveyard. I can't even imagine the immense sorrow this man has. Just put yourself in his situation. Can you picture the sense of hopelessness you would feel? What would it be like to be tormented by demons, to be naked, to live among the tombs? It would be horrible. But to see his condition is to remind us that we are not beyond the reach of Jesus ever. Now, in the next few verses, we're going to see the demon speaking to Jesus, not the man. So the demon speaks through the man to Jesus, starting in verse 28. Quote, When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him and said with a loud voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, do not torment me. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. For many a time it had seized him. He was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles, but he would break the bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. Jesus then asked him, What is your name? And he said, Legion. For many demons entered him. And they begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. Now a large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. And they begged him to let them enter these. So he gave them permission. Then the demons came out of the man and entered the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and drowned. Now this is a really wild scene, right? Remember, the he here is really, they're really the demons that are speaking. The spiritual beings who are so terrifying, they are truly terrified of Jesus. It says they are begging him. In many movies, we see a struggle between good and evil, and it's unclear sometimes who's going to win. In this encounter, when we're talking about God versus evil, there is no contest, and the demons clearly know it. There's so many demons present in this man that they're called legion. Now, this is a little bit of speculation, okay? So let's hear that. Let's digest it. This is speculation. In the Roman world, a legion was four to 6,000 soldiers, okay? So Mark's gospel gives us the added detail that there are about 2,000 pigs. So were there 2,000, 4,000, 6,000 demons in this guy? Very possibly. Think about that. Think about there being two, four, six thousand demons tormenting him. But truly, it doesn't matter if there's six thousand or six trillion. They don't want none of Jesus. 
They have nothing compared to him. It does not matter how many they are or what kind of demons they are. They are helpless in front of the Most High. Verse 34, quote, When the herdsmen saw what had happened, they fled and told it in the city and in the country. Then people went out to see what had happened. And they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. And those who had seen it told them how the demon-possessed man had been healed. End quote. The people of the town see the man that has been freed and healed, but they're missing the point. Yes, Jesus is more powerful than anyone they could ever imagine, but he's not like the demons. He didn't come to torment. He didn't come to imprison. Actually, he came for the opposite. He came to set the captive free. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. He brought freedom to the man. That's what the word of Jesus does. That's what God's word does. And while we may not have been possessed by demons, the Bible is clear that every single person is born enslaved to sin. We are born where we sometimes know what is the right thing, but we choose differently. We are born in a way where we just can't stop making the wrong choice. We just follow our desires or what's right in our eyes, and it leads to the same thing time and time again. Because of sin, those who don't know Jesus will always choose to rebel against God. The gospel is the good news of Jesus, that he has paid for every wrongdoing ever committed for those who believe. And since he took the punishment for us, we can receive new life. And that new life isn't just a clean slate. It's being made new so that we don't have to be a slave to sin. He makes freedom possible. That doesn't mean temptation goes away, but it means that we can conquer it. Through Christ, we are more than conquerors. Author Russell Moore said it this way, quote, We highlight the testimony of the ex-alcoholic who says, Since I've met Jesus, I've never wanted another drink. Now that happens sometimes, and we should give thanks for God's power here. But this liberation is no more miraculous, indeed in some ways less so, than the testimony of the repentant alcoholic who says, Every time I hear a clink of a glass, I tremble with desire. But God is faithful in keeping me sober. It might be that God frees your appetite from whatever it's drawn toward, but usually instead, He enables you to fight it. End quote. With either way, whether He frees you from the appetite or whether He enables you to fight it, God's Word sets us free. All right, let's pick back up in verse 40 through 48. Quote, now when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed Him. For they were all waiting for him. And there came a man named Jairus, who was the ruler of the synagogue. And falling at Jesus' feet, he implored him to come to his house. For he had an only daughter, about twelve years of age, and she was dying. As Jesus went, the people pressed around him, and there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for twelve years. And though she had spent all her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. She came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment, and immediately her discharge of blood ceased. And Jesus said, Who was it that touched me? When all denied it, Peter said, Master, the crowds surround you and are pressing in on you. But Jesus said, Someone touched me, 
For I perceive that power has gone out from me. And when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling and falling down before him, declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. End quote. So a ruler of the synagogue named Jairus has a 12-year-old daughter, and she is dying. This starts two stories that will intertwine with one another. Jairus would have been a well-known, well-respected guy in the community. Probably not a Sadducee nor a Pharisee or anything like that. Probably more of a guy who handled the administrative aspects of the synagogue. So he's still at the center of the Jewish world, just maybe not as formal as some other guys. But as Jesus is making his way to Jairus and his daughter, there's this crowd of people, and they are making traveling difficult. They're pressing in on all sides. And in this process, Jesus notices that power has gone from him to someone else. Healing kind of power. Now we come to find out that it went to a lady who had been suffering for 12 years. It is interesting to me that the girl Jesus is on his way to heal is 12 years old, and that this woman has been suffering for 12 years. I'm not really the type that interprets numbers as having some kind of like greater hidden meaning. Uh, I just think it's interesting. Think about this woman who has been suffering for 12 years and her condition. Since it has to do with blood, she would have been considered unclean. That means she could not participate in any sort of religious life. She's an outsider. The blood nature of her ailment also likely means she lived in an anemic, weakened state. All that is added to the hopelessness of no doctor being able to help her, and furthermore, she's out of money. This storm of life has hit hard. So where does she turn? She decides to turn to Jesus. Look at verse 48 again. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. He tells her to go in peace, that she is well. Now, really, this is another example in chapter 8 where the Word of God brings peace. Or you could focus on your faith has made you well and see another example of God's Word bringing freedom to the hopeless. So far in chapter 8, we see that God's Word gives us family. God's Word gives us peace. God's Word gives us freedom. And finally, we're to God's Word gives us life. Here are verses 49 through 53. Quote, While he was still speaking, someone from the ruler's house came and said, Your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. But Jesus, on hearing this, answered him, Do not fear. Only believe and she will be well. And when he came to the house, he allowed no one to enter with him except Peter and John and James and the father and mother of the child. And all were weeping and mourning for her. But he said, Do not weep, for she is not dead but sleeping. And they laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. End quote. The intertwined stories of the woman and the girl, they shift back to the young girl. Jairus received the heartbreaking news that his daughter has died. There's no good time to receive such news. It's horrible through and through. But notice this man was not alone when he received it. No, he was with Jesus. And we see that in verse 50, Jesus answered him. He said, do not be afraid. Only believe and she will be well. I mean, that sounds crazy, right? Who would say such a thing? Only believe and she, the one who has passed away, will be well? Well, Jairus believed. And I can tell you Jairus believed because they continued to his house. Maybe it's an act of desperation. 
Or maybe he just truly trusts Jesus. When they get there, Jesus compassionately says, Do not weep, for she is not dead but sleeping. I know here in the year of our Lord 2023, we like to believe that we're smarter than people of the ancient world. But I can assure you that 2,000 years ago, people still knew what a dead body looked like. If there was no breath, there was no pulse. They knew. In verse 53, said, knowing that she was dead. They were not mistaken about the girl's condition. But they were mistaken over what Jesus meant and what he is capable of. So they laugh at Jesus, which, even if they thought he was crazy, considering the circumstances, laughing hardly seems appropriate. But then look at what happens in verses 54 through 56. By taking her by the hand, he called, saying, Child, arise. And her spirit returned, and she got up at once. And he directed that something should be given to her to eat. And her parents were amazed, but he charged them to tell no one what had happened. End quote. With two words, child, arise. She who was dead was brought back to life. God's word gives us life. Her body and spirit, they were united again. Her earthly life was restored. And if you needed proof that she was really alive again, she eats. Ghosts or spirits, they don't eat. They don't have bodies to do that. But this little girl is completely healed. Now, I maintain that it was inappropriate for everyone to laugh at what Jesus says. On some level, though, you've got to know how crazy it sounded. What or who could possibly bring the dead to life? God can. He is the creator of all things. He is the giver of life. He owns life. All life is his. It is a small thing for him to raise someone from the dead. Now, if you read 1 Corinthians 15, you will see that God bringing the dead to life is such a key piece for us to understand the hope we have in Christ. God gives life, the kind of life that is true, vibrant, and eternal. In our gospel story, we know that we were dead in our trespasses of sins, and it was the Word of God that brought life to us. It is the Word of God who brought us dead in our sins to being alive in Christ, and it is the Word of God that will one day bring us to resurrection so that we are alive forevermore. In this passage, we've seen that God's Word gives us family, that God's Word gives us peace, that God's Word gives us freedom, and that God's Word gives us life. Oh, how powerful! The Word of God truly is. Thanks for listening to the Steadfast Podcast. I want to remind you that in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 58, Paul wrote this, quote, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain, end quote. So in light of biblical truth, let us be steadfast, immovable. Let us remember that through Jesus, not one labor is in vain, not one trial is in vain, not one effort in all of our lives is in vain. Because he gives purpose, and that purpose rings through eternity. That's all I've got for you today. Thank you so much for listening. And don't forget, if you've got questions you would like answered, you can email me at matt at steadfastpodcast.com.